0: Well, it is uh, just a rich honor to be here. Um, you can probably, if you're a parent, you probably know uh, how meaningful that experience was just now uh, to be introduced by your son and uh, just a rich blessing. Um, what often is left unsaid that you might not know, but I'll just clarify, I'm a graduate of the Master's Seminary. I graduated sometime around uh, 91 or 92 in the, in the ice age of the Master's Seminary. And uh, uh, that was a rich uh, experience and a great blessing to me. Um, And I'm just thankful for God's provision, the way he's led our church uh, survived well uh, through Hurricane Harvey. Uh, We had about 30 families affected one way or another. About half of those were devastated, uh, but nearly all of them have found, um, uh, well, all of them have given testimony of God's grace, but uh, most of those had insurance uh, and the church has been able through the generosity of other people and other churches, really, all over the country, our church is able to help those who uh, would have completely lost everything because they weren't insured. And so we, we escaped with water literally at our doorstep and our, our street was completely flooded. Uh, we uh, had to um, evacuate and we were out for about nine days, but uh, the water never got into our house. And so that was a real relief for us. I mean, we uh, likely would have just given up and moved to Kingsburg in with Blake and Becca <laughs> if, if we had experienced that. So I know they're very thankful that, uh, that nothing happened. Uh, We love coming here. Uh, We love the way that you all uh, care for our family and love them. It's been a rich blessing to see, and it's it's just exciting for me to see what you all are going through as you anticipate uh, receiving God's blessing of the building. Uh, It's a rich time in the life of your church, and it's something that a lot of people never get to experience. You know that, right? Uh, To be part of a a healthy, growing church and then to have an opportunity to design ministry space uh, that... The ministry is never about the space. It's about what will happen in it. Uh, The space is merely a tool that you can use to God's glory. And um, what a rich time. I hope you're um, loving every moment of it, even the challenges of it, because there will be. uh, There probably have been already and there probably will continue to be challenges. But uh, just enjoy that because, uh, man, that's such a great thing that so many people never get to experience. And uh, we're so excited for you. And I tell people all the time when I ask about Blake, I tell them about your church and about the way you've uh, loved them well, the way you love the gospel, the way you love uh, Bible ministry. And so uh, thank you for being who you are, and uh, we're excited about what's going to happen, what's happened already in the last 10 years, but what's also going to happen as you continue. I've been in this class a few times and have been really blessed by um, Scott's teaching. It's Scott, right? I said it right? Uh, What a great job he's done. Uh, He must love the Old Testament, because it seems like every time I'm here he's in the Old Testament. Um, And so uh, it's an honor to be here and uh, please express to him my gratitude. Uh, I don't take this for uh, granted by any means. Uh, So I know you're working through Exodus, uh, probably close to the end, am I right? And so um, I thought it might be great since it's Thanksgiving week. um, As I thought about what I'd have the opportunity to share, I thought it might be good to take a psalm that really kind of covers the Exodus story but also emphasizes thanksgiving, and so that psalm is Psalm 106. So if you have your Bibles uh, open up, Um, I also have some notes that uh, they're uh, not so much for keepsakes, they're just to keep. I know you're following the notes, and that means that I have to stay on track. So that's the reason I use those notes, and so uh, hopefully that will be helpful for us. So Psalm 106 uh, is a psalm of uh, thanksgiving. It's a psalm uh, that uh, exalts in God's goodness despite the weaknesses and failures of his people. That's basically what the psalm does. And it is a psalm that is in many ways discouraging. Uh, There are are aspects of the psalm that are even shocking to us and make us uncomfortable. But framing this psalm in the beginning and the end, we have the psalmist um, exulting in God's goodness. For those of you who care about these things, uh, this is likely a post-exilic psalm or perhaps it was written during the exile. Scholars are not exactly sure. Part of it is uh, recorded in 1 Corinthians 16 in David's great prayer where he's excited and anticipating um, uh, uh, when they are uh, dedicating the temple. You'll find uh, aspects of verse 1 and also the last couple of verses in 1 Chronicles 16. And so um, most Hebrew scholars think that this was, a, the, at least that part, th- those were basically words out of a Hebrew praise song, out of a, a, a song of worship that uh, it had been used in the dedication of the temple, and then now it was also included in this uh, exilic psalm, which is really a prayer acknowledging the people's failure, but celebrating God's goodness. Uh, I find that just a continuing theme of everything I see in Scripture, the, the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth. This is the definition of the gospel. Uh, the truth of the, the depravity of man, And yet the love of God and the fullness of God's grace to us in spite of our sinfulness. And so that's what we have here in Psalm 106. And so um, I know it's a long psalm, but I want us to read through it. So if you'll follow along, uh, Psalm 106, we'll start in verse 1 and uh, just follow along as we read. These are God's words for us today. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are those who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers when they were in Egypt did not consider your wondrous works they did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea yet he saved them for his namesake that he might make known his mighty power he rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry and he led them through the deep as through a desert so he saved them by the hand of the foe from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. You've seen this in Exodus, right? But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swaddled up Dathan and covered the multitude of Abir- Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company, and the flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God. Romans 1, right? They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God. God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea therefore he therefore he said he would destroy them but Moses his chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them then he despised then excuse me then they despised the pleasant land having no faith in his promise they murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever." They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples, as the Lord had commanded them. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and He abhorred His heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times He delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, He looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied among all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Now you read this text, and you recognize immediately, as it begins with thanksgiving, you see that in verse 1, and it ends with thanksgiving, you realize that in between, there is this devastating account of the inadequacy and the failure and the sinfulness of God's people. And I think that's where I want to begin this morning. I want to emphasize the fact that self-sufficiency and giving thanks are incompatible. The sense that you've got all you need, the sense that you can handle this, the sense that you're going to be okay, and then the idea of giving thanks, those things don't go together. Uh, when Blake was really little, was family gathering around Thanksgiving, and we were making a big deal, as I'm sure you do, about thanking God for the food. And Blake's comment was, why do we thank God? Mom made dinner. Uh, that was his childish, innocent, honest response. Uh, And that's the way a lot of people continue to think. They never grow out of that. Their perspective is, you know, I know there may be some God somewhere. I know there may be some sense of God's uh, doing this or doing that. And we sure will pray to God if we have a problem. But overall, we got this covered. I often think in our culture, um, the attitude that people have toward God is, I'm good. I'm good until things go wrong. And what you have in this psalm is you have this devastating critique of the habitual, cyclical disobedience and self-centeredness and self-sufficiency of God's people that regardless of the circumstances, they end up going their own way. And what this psalm should remind us of is that what you really need is you need humility and thanksgiving together. Because you have the psalmist giving thanks, and then in his humility, he's acknowledging his sin and the sin of his people. He's essentially, in a sense, he's modeling repentance here. He's showing an honesty. He was—he's looking at his at his own sin the way God looks at it. That's basically, you know, that's the idea of confession. It's saying the same thing. It's when you confess, you're agreeing with God. You're professing about yourself and your sinfulness. You're professing what God sees and what God professes, if I can say it that way. That's what confession is. And so, humility is what is often missing in our hearts. And what you've got in the psalm is you've got this devastating critique of the depravity of people and linked with this sense of thanksgiving. But you've also got another thing. Because if you think about the setting of the psalm, and you think about the, the issues that are being raised in it, and you think about what, at the end of the day, the psalmist asks for, this is really, in a sense, it's a prayer for revival. It was the psalmist writing after the people had been taken into exile, long after the exodus. But finally, they continue to go through these cycles of disobedience, deliverance, disobedience, deliverance, disobedience, to where God finally says enough. And because of their rank idolatry, He sends them, He disperses them among the nations, and they're in captivity. And what the psalmist is praying, whether he's already arrived back in Jerusalem, back in the land of Abraham, or whether he's praying for that, we don't know for sure, but he's really asking for revival. He's crying out for revival. Now, let me just stop and ask you about that. I think most of you are aware, because I know the way Pastor Scott teaches in his theology, uh, revival is not something that we can drum up, right? We're all good with that. Revival is a sovereign work of the Spirit of God. But what do you think we ought to pray for when we desire revival? We're asking God to move, and so uh, how do you pray for revival? What are some things that you pray for when you pray for revival? I won't ask you if you do pray for revival, because a lot of us would probably be ashamed. It's not something that is often in our hearts and minds the way perhaps it should be. But when you have a sense of revival, whatever that means to you, what do you pray for? Anybody? Filling up the new building. Okay, that would represent revival, okay? So for that to happen, what's going to have to happen? What do you pray for? Yeah? A change in the hearts of the people. Okay, so a change that begins in the hearts, not circumstantial, not even external performance driven so much as a change in the heart. That's good? Yes? Okay, So to know God in a fuller way, uh, in a more accurate, uh, truthful, yeah, great, internal. What else do you pray for? You think about revival. Pray to understand Bible understand the Bible. Okay. Uh, it's not a human um, construct. It doesn't come from human knowledge. It doesn't come from, obviously, as we've already implied, it doesn't come from methods. But really, it comes from a knowing God. And God reveals himself. Uh, by His Spirit, He reveals Himself through His Word. That's the way that God operates. And so uh, we want to come back to the Word, right? Yes? For those who are in sin, to see their God. Sees it. Okay. Okay. So uh, who, who did you say? For who? For those who are in sin, to see their family God. For, so those who are living in disobedience, to recognize that, the way that God sees it, the way that God, uh, God acknowledges it. That has to happen for revival. And again, that comes back to this sense of self-sufficiency versus humility. It comes back to that sense of knowing you have a need to begin with. And that's really what you see in this text. You see a God-centeredness, first of all. You see a God-centeredness in all of it. But you also see this acknowledgement of uh, this is who we are. And so this psalm is really a template, I think, of praying for revival. It's God, this is who you are in your kindness, in your greatness. And here's who we are. And there's no whitewashing it. There's no trying to put a good facade on it. This is who we are. And then that puts the people in a place where God sovereignly will do what he chooses to do. But as long as we stay in a position of pride, as long as we say, well, at least we're not those people. You, know, that's, you don't see anything of that in this text. You don't see, well, at least we were better than the Canaanites. That's not the point. The point is the sinfulness in our own lives, the unworthiness in our own lives, and a dependence, not a self-sufficiency, but a dependence upon God to work and to move. And that's the source of revival. So, uh, obviously, the source of revival is God's sovereign move. But those are the circumstances that God delights in pouring out revival. And so, let me just say, first of all, that I think what you see here, in verses 1 through 6 especially, is you see that thanksgiving leads to confession and petition. Because that's what happens here. In the setting up of this psalm, the psalmist begins, and he gives thanks to begin with. But that immediately drives him. If if you'll allow me. Let me just try to imagine for a moment. I know this is just my teaching, my idea. This is not necessarily from Scripture. I think here's what's going on in the mind of the psalmist. It's verse 1. He said, Praise the Lord, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And then immediately I think in His heart and mind what happens is, Us, not so. And so why is it that His steadfast love endures forever when we have so consistently and f- and and faithfully, in a very negative sense, regularly gone our own way. That's what makes the the steadfast love of God so astonishing. And so he's recognizing that as he gives thanks, it immediately leads to, wait a minute, this is how good God has been to me. This is how good God has been to our, our people. But this is what we've done. This is the way we've lived. This is our DNA, was basically what he's saying. And then you have a whole psalm that, again, it's kind of difficult to read and not very fun to think through. But what we find here is that when you really give thanks to God, it drives you also into petition, but that petition is not for more stuff. You catch that? It's not for more stuff, but it's really a petition of God's presence and God's forgiveness and God's kindness. And so there's this this sense of confession. You could really have read this Thanksgiving. It really leads to repentance. Thanksgiving leads to repentance so let me just comment on a couple of things um, in this text. I think it's interesting. He asks a question, and I don't think it's merely rhetorical. I think he answers it. In verse 2, you see in verse 2, he says, Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? And then he says in verse 3, Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. I think he's answering his question. These are the people who can praise God. Uh, people who don't have a relationship with God and, and don't, don't be concerned about works righteousness in verse 3. That's a very typical Old Testament way of describing people who are under God's covenant, who are faithful to Him, who manifest faithfulness to Him. It's not, not the assumption of the psalmist that anyone is perfect. It's not the assumption of the psalmist that anyone has earned their favor, God's favor. Uh, the psalmist in other places knows that no one does righteousness all the time. But this is a poetic, kind of a generic, maybe hyperbolic hyperbolic way of talking about those who are under God's covenant, those who are faithful to Him, those that God has been kind to. And what the psalmist says is, you can't really praise God unless you've experienced His kind favor in view of your sinfulness. People who are not in the faith, it's not only that they, they, they can't even understand the nature of God, much less praise Him. And... We saw this in Harvey. I don't know how much of that you watched if you watched any of the coverage. but you know I, we, we're delight. I think we're almost at the point where we can call ourselves Texans. We've been there fifteen years, and uh, you're almost accepted uh, after that amount of time. but um, but there is this real sense of pride in the sense of of you know the, the people even in our neighborhood and all the neighborhoods, even all across the city, they didn't wait for the government to come solve their problem, but you have neighbors helping neighbors, and that's kind of a Texan thing. and you had people risking their lives, and we had the Cajun Navy who came over from Louisiana with their boats, and they were kind of rescuing people. It was great to see in our city. But you had all of these people, and, and it was a real struggle for me to walk through this with our people, because you have that glorious neighborly support and encouragement, and, uh, and we were all thanking God for that. But m- most of those people have no profession of faith in Jesus, as, at least in a genuine way, as we would understand. And yet you have them, you know, helping their neighbors and sacrificing and uh, even to some degree at risk. And, and so there's a sense of, okay, then what's the difference between, what's the difference between a believer who, who does that kind of thing, who serves their neighbor, and just a good neighbor who serves the neighbor? And here's the difference. The difference is the good neighbor is doing it with no perception of thanking God, even for the trial. And so what's happening right now is we have people who, as they're giving their testimonies, they're thanking God for His goodness. They're thanking God for His goodness, not so much that God delivered them through the trial, but that God is faithful no matter what. They're able to thank God for the rain. They're able to thank God for the flood. And that's a perception that is incomprehensible, that their God is good. Even though God, who not only sent the deliverer, but He also sent the rain. You you get that? God didn't just send the neighbor who helped them, but God sent the rain that caused the problem. And yet people who have a, a robust faith in the God of the Bible, and as revealed in Jesus Christ, they have that relationship with Him. They're able to acknowledge God's goodness even in that heartache and even in that loss. And that's the difference. And that's what the psalmist is getting at there in verses 2 and 3. Uh, look in verses 6 and 7, uh, mainly verse 6. After all of this, as he, as he leads into it, he says this confession. It's a primary central confession in the, in the psalm in verse 6. He says, both we and our fathers. So he sees himself in this corporate identity of the people of Israel under the covenant. And that's very common in the Old Testament. You have God working with the nation as a covenant group. And so uh, they owned their responsibility with one another. He not only says we have sinned, but we know that our fathers have sinned. So there's this corporate confession, as it were. And what you need to grasp, I don't know if you've... Does anybody know what Psalm 105 is about? Don't, don't look, don't look. Y'all are cheating. Does anybody know Psalm 105? Psalm 105 is almost as long as Psalm 106. And it is over and over and over again, these are the good things our God has done. Now, catch this for a minute. The psalmist in 105, whenever they compile the psalm, There is this great worship song about how great God is, how good God is, how powerful God is, how gracious God is, how loving God is, how faithful God is. And then you go into Psalm 106, and they planned it this way. And by the way, Psalm 106 ends Book 4 of the Psalms. So it's kind of like a a mini-conclusion. The next Psalm 107 begins Book 5. And so you've got this... This wrapping up, where 105, you've got this incredible, overwhelming excitement about God's goodness. And then you started Psalm 106 and it's uh, give thanks to God for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter his mighty deeds? Blessed are those who observe justice. Remember the Lord, show favor. Remember me, O Lord, and show favor. And then you come to verse 6 both we and our fathers have sinned. And we miss the surprise of that. What? Wait a minute. This is the God you have. This is the way God has provided for you. This is the way God has forgiven you. This is the way God has brought you into His covenant and made promises to you that He would care for you, that, that, that your inheritance would be eternal, that He would provide a Redeemer to cover your sins. This is your God. You sinned? You went your own way? We are meant to be struck with that. And yet, sometimes I think on our tombstones, Our our favorite saying that was going to go on some of our tombstones is, nobody's perfect. You know, we live with that mantra, don't we? And in doing so, we lose this incredible sense of God's infinite kindness and goodness and our utter depravity, our pervasive depravity. It's not that we're as bad as we can possibly be, but we're as bad off as we can possibly be. And so that's what you have in this text. You have this sense of stunned-surprised. And so he goes in and he gives two... I, I find in this text, other, other teachers and scholars will divide it differently, but I find two categories of disobedience. Uh, I think what you have here in verses 7 through 33, you have examples of failure while the people were waiting, while they were wandering through the wilderness. And you have over and over again these accounts that we have in Old Testament narratives. They're not necessarily chronological. If any of you are really uh, astute Old Testament scholars, you'll recognize that. Um, the psalmist doesn't even go in order necessarily, but he lists all of these places where the people, as they were wandering in the wilderness, as they were moving into the wilderness, and then we recognize that they sinned, and they had to live out their lives in the wilderness through that entire process. They were waiting for the fulfillment of God, and yet what they did is they failed over and over and over again. And you have this kind of debilitating list of all of these things that if you're like me, you remember these stories from Sunday school. You remember Moses getting mad at the people and, you know, st- striking the rock and, and being angry. You remember the story of the, of the murmuring and the, and the fiery serpents that were sent. You remember the story of, of Moses, God in his anger, expressing his wrath and, and expressing the desire to do away with his covenant people and Moses standing in the breach. And who's that an example of? Who did we need to stand in the breach to turn away the wrath of God? Jesus himself. And so you've got these examples of, of all during the time of wandering and the time of waiting, you have people, these people in disobedience. But look in verse 8, and you'll see it. So that begins in verse 7, where he begins the accounts. He says, our fathers, uh, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, etc. And then look at verse 8, yet he saved them. Often the Psalms do this. You've seen this before where it'll go between you and then it talks third person of God. It's just an odd feature of Hebrew. It says in verse 6, Yet He, speaking of God, He saved them for His name's sake that He might make known His mighty power. Now, I want to stop here and camp for just a minute. Look at that verse again. What is the reason God did all of this? He did it for Himself, yeah. What, What problems are raised by that? idea. Yes? Yeah. 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 This is a, a, once again you have here kind of a a fundamental dichotomy between people who understand any kind of biblical theology and people whose theology is driven in man's sinterness. Because God is pleased to do what he does for his own purposes, for his own glory. And I remember I, I didn't get that, even though Psalm 106.8 was in the Bible the whole time I was in Sunday school, the whole time I heard preaching growing up. But I didn't get that until much later in my life in ministry, early, I would say early in my ministry, Uh, before seminary. But I'd already been in in ministry, and this idea I began to be exposed to this idea to go over again that whatever God does, He does for His own pleasure. Because I'd been taught, as many of us probably have, I'd been taught a very sentimental view, that all that God does, He does because He loves me. This is what God does. He does it because He loves me which makes me kind of the center of the story. This is my story, and God's a role player in my story. And what I began to see in Scripture, and if you'll honestly look at Scripture, it's all the way through. It's from Genesis all the way to maps, right? Is, is what you've got is you've got God who does what He does for His own purposes. He does what He does for His own, for his own glory. And it's exactly what you said. Uh, this sounds so self-centered. And, I, I, you know, just a little bit of of family honesty here. Blake's getting nervous already. It's not about me. It's not about him. It's about when I was raised. Uh, my parents were huge on this thing of, you don't, you don't, uh, you don't ask for yourself. You, you, don't, you don't put the spotlight on yourself. You know, you, you always deflect other people. It was like, it was this crazy thing that uh, they were kind of over the top with it, that it's not about your comfort. It's not about, you know, they, don't be selfish. Don't be self-centered. And so then I had this, I began to deal with this view of God where God was exactly what I was told I shouldn't be doing. And yet I'd always been told that I was supposed to live my life and look like God. I was supposed to, to represent, you know, the image of God in my life. And so I had this dissonance that uh, I had to work through. And of course, you, the, the answer to that is in the truth that if God desired anything less than His glory, He would be desiring less than best, and therefore He'd be less than God. For us to desire our own glory, it's all for mixed motives, and it's all driven with, with uh, wrong motives and with a sinful heart. But God exalts himself because that's the absolutely appropriate thing for the God of the universe to do. And anything less would be not kind to us, would be denigrating to his own glory, would be contrary to his image, to his very nature. It would be, at, at the end of the day, you can use the phrase inappropriate. But here's what I think happens. I, I think you're exactly right. I think we're uncomfortable about that because of the the, you know, the the new atheists use the term that God, especially the God of the Old Testament, is this megalomaniac God, you know, who has to have everything His way, and it's all about Him. And I think, I think it used to be that people were uncomfortable with that because of the reasons we just acknowledged. Because a lot of people raised like I was. You know, you don't put yourself forward. You don't make yourself the center. You know what I think is true today? I think people don't want competition. I think they, they want to be their own God. And they don't say it that bluntly. But why would I submit to the God of the universe? I've got every right to have it my way as much as He does. And this is the culture that we're in. It's kind of the, the full flowering of the hyper-individualism that really kind of grew out of the Renaissance and, and it's, it's now reached in the Enlightenment and it's reached its full flower here at the beginning of the 21st century and it's causing heartache everywhere. Because basically everyone's their own God. And everyone has as much right to whatever they want, to their own self-expression, How dare anyone say that I shouldn't do this, or I can't do this, or I can't live this way? And so, once again, you see this dichotomy between a biblical theology which says, my comfort doesn't really matter in the big scheme of things. Uh, It doesn't do away with God's kindness. It doesn't do away with God's concern. God is a loving Father. But it's not so much about me, it's about God's glory. And that's a fundamental aspect. And you see it revealed here in Psalm 106, and as the psalmist thinks about the history of God's people Israel, he acknowledges it. Um, Look in verse 22. Uh, I I know I'm skipping a lot, but we'd be here all day, and I don't think Pastor Scott would appreciate that. So um, in verse 22, you notice um, there's a reference to these incredible miracles. And since you give me the privilege of talking today, I'm just going to ride a hobby horse for a minute. Um, I think we are really, I think we cheapen the word miracle the way we use it. And I think, I think it's unfortunate, because we treat everything like it's a miracle. We talk about miracles all the time. God did this. God did this for me. And 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 we do it. I think with noble intentions. I, 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 I'm not. I'm not saying we have bad hearts in this. But every unusual thing that happens in our lives, we say this is a miracle. And um, and when we do so, we are using language in a way that uh, Scripture does not use it, and we also are robbing that language of its richness and its depth. And let me tell you what I mean by that. In the Bible, a miracle was a raw miracle. It's not just that when the people came to the Red Sea, it's not this that they had to wade through the water because it was low tide. Well, what does it say? It says it was dry land. It was pure miracle. It was unmistakable. It wasn't like and I don't, I don't mean to be unkind, but it wasn't like these things you see on television, which, you know, uh, you know God, I had back pain for 20 years and now my back pain's gone. And how do I know that? I, I, it may be that God was kind to remove your back pain, but to call that a miracle, it's unverifiable. And what you have in scriptures, every time the concept of miracle is presented, it's undeniable. It's like, and it, nearly all cases, it's also, nearly all cases, it's, it's immediate. And so what happens is we use the word miracle for... You know, I, I went to the mall at Christmas, and I got a I got a parking place close to the door. It's a miracle, you know. And and so so, so let me give you a, and you know my and you can use it with parenting, you know. My my kids obeyed last night. It was a miracle, you know. And and what happens with miracle is basically if you want me to give you a technical category, and this is way beyond. I, I already warned you. I knew it was a rabbit trail, but I'm I'm justifying going down it because of that. Um, A miracle in the Scripture is where God changes nature. Where God changes nature. He has set the rules of nature in place. Where God overrules or changes nature for the sake of whatever purpose there is. And if it's not that, it's not a miracle. But now, don't give up yet. Just hold on a minute. Because I believe that God is providentially controlling everything. And I would suggest to you that that's as big a miracle as anything else that the God of the universe is so omniscient and omnipotent and uh, omnipresent. He's everywhere. He knows what he's doing. He has all power so that every circumstance of life... So I can say, God, thank you in your providence. You gave me a parking place at the front door. But I'm not going to call it a miracle because I think what that does is I think it guts the idea biblically of what a miracle really is. And then I think beyond that, what we need to recognize is what's the greatest miracle we ever experience? And for many of us, it might be the only miracle in this life we ever experience. It's the fact that God takes a rebellious, dead, sinful heart and he transforms it into a lover of himself. Now, that's a miracle. And when you cheapen the concept of miracle, you cheapen, I think, and I want to say you in a sense of being harsh because I do it as well. I talk about these great things that seem like a miracle, and they are just the stunning providences, which is the term that the... um, And sometimes they would use the term hard providences, the the Puritans would talk about. A belief that God is in control of all things, and God's kind providences come, and we thank Him for those things. He's in control of all things, and that's a miraculous concept. But a miracle is where, in an answer to prayer, He changes nature. And so then the question always comes, well, does God still work miracles today? I think it's very possible that He does. He's surely able to. But I think if we call everything that is unexplainable to us a miracle, we cheapen the meaning of the word. I think if we call things that can't be verified as a miracle, we cheapen the meaning of the word. And I think what we're missing is that it doesn't matter because we give thanks anyway for God's providence who is working His purposes, no matter whether He answers our prayer for healing or He doesn't. And so that's my rant on miracle. And I know some of you want to argue with me, but I'm going to keep going. So um, here we go. Um, Where am I? Raw miracle. Uh, One more thing in verse 25. Uh, I'll just point this out, and it was humbling to me. it says in verse 24, they, then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. That's when they, they didn't have um, confidence in the promise of God that he would deliver them in the land, so they had to wander 40 more years. And then it says, they murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. And if you remember that story, in their murmuring, God ended up sending the fiery serpents, remember, and, and biting them, and they were dying. And uh, let me just, just, I'll just throw this out for you to think about. Murmuring against God is a serious sin. Murmuring against God, he counts it as a serious sin. And in this context, you kind of get the idea why. Because God has provided for his people. This was the generation that saw the 10 plagues. Where the plagues, each plague represented an in-your-face trash talk against the idols of Egypt, right? And then God delivered them through the Red Sea on dry land And then they're there, they're murmuring against God. Now, I don't know about you, but I think in my life, I'm likely not going to fall because of some kind of sexual immorality. There's not going to be a big financial scandal where you find out I'm running a Ponzi scheme. But if God really revealed my murmuring heart, I wonder if I'd even still be qualified for the ministry, the things I murmur about. Uh, One of the old commentators said it this way, If this were the only sin, still the whole world might be justly destroyed. Murmuring against God. And so be careful. This kind of goes with that thing we were just talking about, about God's providence. And God did not allow His people to continue in their murmuring. He showed us what He thinks of it with fiery serpents. And so you have to be careful. Now, here's what I think. As a pastor... I always try to put myself as a, as a shepherd in the hearts of people and thinking, and I, I always try to give them grace. And so here's a position I could take. And again, I recognize it's not really the biblical position, but bear with me for just a minute. The people of Israel are wandering in the desert. They, they thought they were moving into the promised land because it was their own disobedience, but they didn't. And so they're wandering in the desert. Uh, they have quail every day. They have manna every day. Um, they are wandering about water. There are literally hundreds of thousands of them into the millions. They're at risk because of marauding armies all the way through their wandering. They, their life is not in any way easy, okay? So in their time of waiting, it seems to me like we, you and I could say, this is only a human perspective, but you and I could say, I understand why they failed. I understand why they murmured. I understand why they disagreed. I get it, even though it's not excusable from a pastoral perspective, I can look at it and I can say, yeah, I, I, I get that. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that's a valid position. I'm just saying it's at least understandable in a sense. But here's what happens. They get into the land and it continues. It's not just the time of waiting. Uh, beginning in verse 34, you have uh, the, their continued failure after provision. It's not just during their time of waiting that they're murmuring and they're disobeying and they're yielding and they're chasing after false gods and all of this. But now they've landed in the land that God promised them. And what happens in verse 34? Look at it. It says, They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did, etc., etc. So here in time of waiting... On a human level, you could say, well, I, I understand why they wandered, but then God gave them what they'd been waiting for. And what did they do? They continued the same cycle. They just continued over and over again. And again, what the psalmist is trying to get us to see is, it doesn't matter about circumstances. You can never blame your circumstances. The position I just suggested is not really a valid position. It doesn't excuse by any means their disobedience in the desert. But the point is, even after God gave them their provision, He gave them the land. And remember the kind of land it was? <clears throat> it was a good land. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. And God gave it to them. With, with cisterns they didn't have to build, remember? Or dig, remember? And houses they didn't have to build. It's like God, you know, it's like... God just provided it, and they just continue their cycle. And it's a condemnation of the people. But watch this. It's not for the sake of condemnation. It's for the sake of, in contrast, the author's going to say, but look how gracious their God is. Their God never gave up on them. And I'm jumping to the end, but that's what you have going on here. You, You have these examples of of failure after provision. And so you have the book of Joshua, where they didn't possess the land the way they're instructed to do. You have the book of Judges, which is by far the most depressing book in the Bible. Because what happens? First of all, they're not heroes. If I ever do a a sermon series in Judges, I think that's going to be my title. They're not heroes. Because the Judges are all flawed men who in in nearly every case, they go about leading God's people in, in inadequate and ungodly ways. And yet God still is pleased to deliver His people through these flawed quote, heroes, unquote. But then what happens? As soon as he delivers them, you know the cycle, right? as, as Pastor Scott t- taught through Judges? Right? You might suggest it as the next, you know, but just get ready to be depressed. Because, and it gets worse. I don't know if you know the story of the book of Judges, but you get to the end of the book and there are these gruesome crimes that are just violence begetting violence and sexual sins, and it's just overwhelming. And so you have the end of the book of Judges where it says, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And you have this over and, over and this is what the this is what the psalmist he just, he quits listing the examples like he did during the desert, and he just kind of gives this broad category. Here's what they did over and over again, and it was this cycle. It just went over and over, even to the extent of the kind of shocking things you have in verse 37. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed on the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. They became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Uh, we read that and we think, how is, it? How is that possible? How could, how could the people of God, who had all of the promises of God and had seen the power of God, and they had now the law of God, how could they be so corrupted that they would abort their babies? Oh, wait a minute, that's not what it's talking about, is it? But it's not much different. I mean, this is our culture, right? We've had 200 years at least in our nation, more than that, of some kind of generic Judeo-Christian culture that was rooted in biblical truth. It's not that all, all our forefathers were believers. That's not the point. And now we're in a culture where we're sacrifice. literally. I mean, if you watch some of these Planned Parenthood videos, we're literally sacrificing our children to demons. And then those of us who are believers, we look at that and we say, well, Thank God we're not that way, and then we let our children be so exposed to the things of the world that we're doing the same thing. I mean I mean none of us would take a poisonous snake and dump it in our living room, and yet we open the minds of our kids to all kinds of stuff. I'm not sure we should be that shocked. God said, Can't let this continue. All of these crises that we read about in Psalm 106, all of, them, all of them are the result of the persistent unfaithfulness of God's people. And yet it says, do you see it in verse 44? It, it, it's a great word. Nevertheless, verse 44, nevertheless. I'll tell you what, if I'm God, I'm through with these people, right? Nevertheless, He looked upon their distress when He heard their cry for their sake, So there, in God's overall plan, which is concerned about His glory, which is concerned about His name, at the same time, He also is indeed concerned about them and about us. For their sake, He remembered His covenant and relented according to the abundance of His steadfast love. This is not just an Old Testament truth. Uh, I I can't take the time. I think probably um, Scott has taught you well, um, the teacher of this class, and also Pastor Scott. But... um, There's this difficult way in reading the Old Testament where God primarily deals with his covenant people. And so you don't have the kind of individual working that we find in the New Testament. But in the New Testament, what we find is this. Somebody read 2 Timothy 2, 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's the point. What, and, and here's likely what I should have said early on. As you read the Old Testament, what you find is this. The primary takeaway from the Old Testament is that as God deals with His covenant people, Israel, He now deals with you as a covenant believer. So you, you find out the nature of your God by looking in what we call the Old Testament, by looking at the way your God dealt with His covenant promises to His people especially the children of Abraham. And then you transfer that over and you say, well, we're no longer the nation of Israel because the church is not Israel. We are now under the covenant, the new covenant, which God has given through His Son, Jesus Christ. But that same God, the Father of Jesus Christ, is the God who cared for His people Israel under the old covenant. And so the way I see God working with the people of Israel is the same God who cares now for me as I'm under the new covenant and I'm in His family. So what you have here is you have the people of Israel who consistently failed, and yet God would not cast them away because even though they were faithless in the New Testament, even though we are faithless, God is faithful. And that is a great promise. Listen, God has an inflexible determination to save His people. An inflexible determination to save His people. And let me just tell you, this is the primary point of the Old Testament. This is the primary message of the Old Testament. God's unfailing faithfulness to save his people. That's what we have. So, here in verses 44 through 46, these are examples of faithfulness, regardless. Examples of God's faithfulness, regardless of what the people have done. There are temporary chastenings, there are painful circumstances that their disobedience brings about, but God never casts away his people, he is always faithful. And so, let me try to hurry. I was told I had till ten ten. My wife keeps pointing at her watch, terrified that I'm supposed to be done already. So, and if, if that's not right, blame somebody else. Uh, that's what they told me. I, I can hurry here, though. Um, so, let me just wrap this up. You come down to the end, and what we find is this. Not only does Thanksgiving lead to repentance, that's what we started with, remember? But at the end, what you find is that repentance leads to Thanksgiving. Repentance leads to Thanksgiving. So it's a cycle. You say, well, wait a minute, which is it? And it's both. when you give thanks, it causes you to recognize where you have failed and you confess and repent and you petition God in that confession. But then as you do that, you also turn around, you remember God's abundant faithfulness and his promises. And so you rest even in your sinfulness, you rest in his forgiveness. And so then you turn around and give thanks. And then as you give thanks, it reminds you once again of where you continue to fall short because of your flesh and uh, the times when you yield. And so you claim God's forgiveness, you confess and you petition, you claim God's forgiveness and God is faithful to forgive you. And then that brings you around to recognizing his steadfast love and you give him thanks for that steadfast love. But as you draw closer to him, here's what happens. The closer you grow to God, the more you recognize your your sinful heart and your motives. And, and so you confess those and you petition and God gives you his forgiveness and his love and it brings you to thank him again. And it's a cycle that goes over and over and over again. And that's the reason this psalm begins with thanksgiving and then it petitions God and confesses the sins of the people. And then it ends with thanksgiving because of confidence that God is radically committed to deliver his people. Now, all of that to say this. There is nothing so certain as God's commitment to His people. And if you are forgiven in Jesus Christ, you are in His family. And He will stop at nothing to call you back when you are in disobedience, to provide for you in your heartache and hurt, to bring you through for the glory of His name. This is the promise you can rest on. And that's a reason to give thanks. I'm thankful for a lot of things. When I get to come see my grandkids for Thanksgiving, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for your church and the way you love my family. I'm thankful for the ministry that God has given us, like Blake was talking about, and the fulfillment that we've had over the last six years. But I want to tell you, all of that pales, and it should at least, it pales in comparison to the thankfulness we have to God that in spite of ourselves, God is faithful. And the the thankfulness is in God's own character. It's, It's for God's character that He's so kind to us when we live lives that look sometimes like Psalm 106, and yet God is radically committed to his people. There's nothing so secure as that. Uh, Let me close with an illustration. Um, You know that the Dodgers and the Astros, I had to bring this up, right? Uh, Had the World (laughs) Series. And we had gotten to the place where we were calling the Astros the Lastros uh, over the last few years because of the way they had played. And so... uh, (coughs) But um, so we have grandkids here in California. We have grandkids in New Jersey. And so the New Jersey grandkids, uh, both of my sons, uh, unfortunately, were still Dodgers fans. And so uh, they were leading their own children astray. And so um, um, Grammy thought that she would teach them a lesson. And so she had a friendly wager. I don't want to talk to you about betting. That's not, uh, just save your emails on that. I'm, I'm going home this week anyway. And so, uh, but so she had this friendly wager with some of the grandkids that were Uh, committed to the Dodgers' victory in the World Series. And so Sam, the six-year-old who lives in New Jersey, uh, we noticed that after the last game, uh, we had a hard time getting the grandkids on the phone. They didn't want to talk to us. And finally, we got Sam on the phone, the six-year-old, and uh, Christy said, Sam, um, what about that bet that we had about uh, that the Astros would win the World Series? And Sam said, oh, I decided to cancel that deal, Grammy. (laughs) I decided to cancel that deal. Our God is not like Sam. He never says to his own I decided to cancel that deal. He could. I mean if it were if we based on our performance, if it we're based on our worthiness, if it we're based on our faithfulness, we could hear God say, you know, I'm going to cancel that deal. But our God doesn't. He didn't do it with his people, Israel. He doesn't do it with those who are under his covenant. That's our hope. That's a reason to give thanks. That's what thanksgiving is about. Because as it says in the text, give thanks for God's steadfast love that endures forever. So that's God's identity, his kindness to us. And it's the reason that all of God's people ought to have Thanksgiving Day every day because of His steadfast love that endures forever.